Let's pray. Father, we come to you, the one we hunger for, the one we fall before, the God of the universe, the Almighty One, the one we can call Abba. We can call you Daddy. We can come to you because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And in that, those who've placed their faith in you are seen as righteous because we're told in 2 Corinthians, Christ's righteousness was given to us. And you were faithful and just to forgive our sins. Lord, we come to a text today that is a bit dark. It's heavy. We've been studying the life of David, and now we come to this touch of reality, a sense of humanity, and understanding that we're no different, for the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? So, Father, as we come to the text, may our lives be challenged because of our study of the word. May we bend our knees where we need to bend our knees and Lord bask in your forgiveness and grace and thank you in Jesus name. Amen. Well, if you would turn to second Samuel chapter 11 and as you do, it was a glorious baptismal service yesterday. We had four individuals, uh, make a public statement, yes, this is who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus, and we'll show those videos on the 30th. We had a membership class as well this morning, 35-ish were present, and God is on the move at CBF, and we're just, isn't it just a joy to be a part uh, of this body of believers? Uh, and, and I just, as your pastor, want to thank you. Pray for our leadership. We have nine elders, and we're meeting tonight forever. Uh, so we're meeting tonight and uh, much to discuss, but it's all good. And we just thank the Lord. Well, we're in, we've been journeying through the life of David and we've seen these glorious moments. And now we come to second Samuel 11. And it's kind of like, oh. so we're going to look at this text. Second Samuel 11. As you turn there, our daughter has started driving education courses. I'm not equating that with uh, in Second uh, Samuel 11, but it does give one pause. <clears throat> but my daughter had this bright idea. She said, Dad, I'm going to test you over the U.S. warning signs. <clears throat> Either I've forgotten half of them, or she was giving me a test that was given in Zimbabwe, but I think I missed nearly half of them, which is not good. I know, avoid when David is on the road. But do you realize there are over 500 warning signs or placards issued by the U.S.? 500. It's crazy. So this morning, we're not going to look at 500 warning signs, but I'm going to give you seven. As we go through the text, we're going to highlight these, and they're for us as a church here as we look at this event. So let's start in verse 1. In the spring of the year, at the time when kings normally conducted wars... David sent out Joab, and we'll get to him in a little bit, with his officers and the entire Israelite army. They defeated the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed behind in Jerusalem. If you're going, oops, red flag, it is a red flag. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, this woman was very attractive. 
So David sent someone to inquire about the woman. The messenger said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent some messengers to her, and she came to him, and he went to bed with her. Now, the parenthetical statement is important. She returned to her home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. <laughs> there is no sin in Scripture apart from Adam and Eve that has received and will receive so much press than the sin between David and Bathsheba. It's shocking. <laughs> this is David, the man after God's own heart. This is God's appointed king. He, he slayed Goliath. He took down giants. He, he prohibited the murder of King Saul. He danced before the Lord. He, we looked at him building, uh, wanted to build a temple. And this is the man who just now had an adulterous affair. Seeing the demise of someone we respect can be very disturbing. I remember just a couple years ago hearing the horrible choices a Christian leader had made which had come to light after his death. It was and still is for me very devastating. <laughs> the scene in 2 Samuel 11 is so horrific. When Chronicles retells many of the stories of Samuel, it omits the scene. <laughs> We're not going there. But you know, I love scripture. These, we're not making up stories. <laughs> they share the good and they share the bad. If I, if I was going to embellish the story, I wouldn't share this about David. We're going to bury that quickly in the archives. But no, no, no. It also highlights the grace of God. And I want you to keep that in mind as we hear some dirty stuff on the life of David. It, 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 scripture and not sugarcoating the story shows us the grace of God. It reminds us we also must take heed and it warns us of the outcome of bad choices. So the text starts here and Joab is sent in chapter 10. If we were to read chapter 10, there was a big battle between the Ammonites and the Arameans. The Arameans had allied with the Ammonites. The Arameans were defeated soundly and the Ammonites have scurried all the way back and now we're at the capital, Rabbah, which is modern day Amman, 40 some miles away from Jerusalem. So the, the, it's now the battle is brought to their very doorstep at their capital. And here's the first warning for us. All right, so we only got seven. Here's the first. We are often most vulnerable when we are most successful. <laughs> David was at an all-time high. He had a military force. It was a world power, the world power at this time in what we call the Iron Age. His boundary extended now nearly 60,000 miles. Modern Israel, modern, modern Lebanon, modern Jordan, all the way down to modern Egypt. I mean, this is a huge empire he has built. David has accumulated, uh, you know, two decades of leadership. He's built a beautiful palace and plans for a temple. And that should spell danger, take heed. As God continues to bless CBF, danger, take heed. Hubris is extremely hazardous to your health. It's not in so small print at the bottom of the bottle. Hard times create dependent people. 
You don't go proud or you don't get proud when you're dependent on God. Survival keeps you humble. It's, it's true of individuals. It's true of communities. It's true of churches. It's true of institutions and companies. We, we must be cautious. As we launch this new ministry, the elders have stressed time and time again in our meetings and in our leadership summits, these ministries that we're launching, they're not yours. They're the Lord's. We hold everything very loosely. The danger is when we start to think this ministry has to have us or you know, I, I got to be involved. I got to have a say here. Careful. This isn't about you. It's about the Lord. And the danger for David, all's going well. And, and look where he's at. He should have been with the army. I mean, this is a major military campaign. He should have been there. In fact, up until this point, David is always with his army. And where is he at? In Jerusalem, enjoying the new wallpaper in his bedroom. He should have been out on the battlefield. And that also leads to success can result in idleness. And you know the old saying, you know, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And that very well could be because David should have been camped again outside those walls. And so the first warning that we see is be very careful because we are extremely vulnerable when things are going well and we're not dependent as much as we think on the Lord. And we see what happens. David in the text highlights it. She's not just beautiful. Bathsheba is very beautiful. She's gorgeous. In fact, the text here in the, the verb says that he sees her. It's the same term used of Eve when she sees the fruit. That there's a, if we had time, there's a lot of correlation between the sin of Adam and Eve and this one here in the text. And the problem is David, he doesn't just happen to see her as he's walking out on the rooftop. The text is clear. He keeps on looking and then he inquires. And this leads us to temptation or warning number two. And that is temptation that is not resisted will result in failure. It is just a matter of time. Let me repeat that because this is warning two in the text. Temptation that is not resisted will result in failure. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Temptation, says, in our members there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery, mastery of the flesh. All at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and it is in flames. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire, ambition, vanity, desire for revenge, love of fame and power, or greed for money. At the moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature, which is, is now this. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill, he, he says he doesn't fill us with the hatred of God, Bonhoeffer says, but with the forgetfulness of God. It's what Jeremiah 17 says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You cannot give airtime to temptation. And that's the exact problem David had. Oh, she's really good looking. And he stops on the rooftop. Mistake number one. And then he summons. And notice what the messenger says. The messenger tells us three things about the very attractive woman. He says, first of all, her name is Bathsheba. 
That's significant. Her name means the daughter of an oath. <laughs> You're a far cry from the oath you've made to God, David. You're making a mockery. Her personal name will not appear again in chapter 11. She's referred to as the woman, as Uriah's wife, and David's wife. But her name does not appear again until later in chapter 12. And by the way, where she's bathing tells us it's in the city proper, which means she has to have some means or some type of clout because she's not far from where the palace is. She lives in the right zip code. And that should be seen because notice what it says about her, what the messenger declares. Her name is Bathsheba. She's the daughter. And you get this name and you go, well, who is that? That's one of David's mighty men. The 30 that were chosen, selected early on. In other words, in fact, we also know if that's the case, we know also uh, Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahathophel, who later will advise David's son Absalom to revolt against David. Now watch this. I don't know if you remember your biblical history. Bathsheba's grandfather later will come alongside David's son Absalom and says, you need to revolt. And by the way, why don't you have sexual relationship with all his concubines? <laughs> the grandfather has not forgotten what happened to his granddaughter years earlier. Bathsheba. So this is a powerful family. They're, they're, they're known in the community. And David, you're not getting away with this. You may think that, and we'll get to this in a minute. <laughs> this is someone who has a lot of clout. She's married into the right family. And then we're told her husband, well, in fact, it says, I love this. By the way, she's married, David. This is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, the Hittites were most likely a minority ethnic group that had settled, resided in Canaan before the time of Abraham. In other words, he's not a Jew. He appears to be a God-fearer, and we're going to see that later in the text. His name, interesting though, is Semitic, and it means the Lord is my light. <laughs> and Uriah is listed in scripture as one of David's most prestigious, most valiant warriors. This is off limits, David. <laughs> this lady belongs to a prestigious family and she's married. Don't go there. And the text tells us he does. Uh, she's right for conception. The text tells us that. And this one night stand leads to Bathsheba becoming pregnant. It's interesting, the text tells us that he took her, which could indicate forcefulness. Uh, certainly the blame is laid at David's feet. Now Bathsheba is not totally innocent, but the blame is laid at David's feet here. He's the leader. And this leads us to the third warning for us as we go through the text. Temptation never reveals its true intent. I mean, think about the synonyms for uh, uh, temptation. Attract, entice, seduce. It has this idea that, ooh, you know, this is going to be fun. It's, it's beautiful. It's thrilling. That's what Satan would love for us to take in. 
But Satan doesn't want you to read the, the small print, the unexpected pregnancy, the STDs, the severe, the severed relationships, the shattered dreams, the sleepless nights, the loss of weight, the total misery, the loneliness and depression that comes from committing adultery. We live in an age that applauds sexual freedom. Woodhouse in his commentary, he makes this side note here on this text. He says, true sexual freedom is when sex is freed from self-centered lust and is able to accomplish its brilliant and unselfish purpose within the confines of marriage. Perhaps this is why recent research shows that 81% of women with a history of prostitution struggle with symptoms of PTSD. 85% who are transgender feel depressed on a weekly basis. And CDC just recently estimated that one out of five in the U.S. have STDs. And nearly half of those occur, uh, new occurrences occur between ages 15 and 24. Wow. There is pleasure in sin for a season. I'm sure it was thrilling to get Bathsheba in that night. But now she's pregnant. And this is devastating. Why? I think it's Psalm 32 where David says, When I refused to confess my sin, my whole body wasted away while I groaned in pain all day long. For day and night you tormented me. You tried to destroy me in the intense heat of summer. I've had young people when I taught come to the office and say, I'm not sure I'm saved. And you, you start to probe and you realize, you know, I, I, I've got this sin. And to me, that's a good sign because they're contrite over their sin. Find me someone who claims to be a believer and doesn't have a problem with the sin that they're embracing. I got some grave concerns. Grave concerns. Sin should be foreign to the life of the believer. And sin always bears consequences. Whether you're 5, 25, 55, or 105, no one is exempt. And James 1 says, temptation prompts desire which gives birth to sin, which eventually produces death. This leads us to warning number four. We have a choice on how we respond after giving in to temptation. We have a choice on how we respond after giving in to temptation. David could have responded, Lord, I have blown it. Bathsheba, I am sorry. Uriah, I am sorry. This was awful. I should not have done this. Lord, forgive me. <laughs> Start with the Lord. The problem is he does what many do, and there's, it's either fight, fright, or flight. <laughs> fight is you, you get angry, you resent, you get bitter. Lord, how could you do this to me? There's fright, you're, you're anxious, you, you worry, or there's flight, and that is you withdrawal, or there's apathy. Let's look with David, how he responds. Verse 6. So David sent a message to Joab that said, send me Uriah the Hittite. Oh, good, David, you're making it right. I love it. Hmm, hold on. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked about how Joab and the army were doing and how the campaign was going on. Can you imagine Joab? I mean, uh, well, Joab we'll get to in a minute, but Uriah, what in the world? What am I doing here? <laughs> What's going on? Some scholars think he already knows. We already have a whole host of messengers. I mean, this has been the gossip at the palace. You know what David did? 
You know, she's pregnant? That can't be. It's all going on. This is not kept in secret. <laughs> David said to Uriah, go down to your home and relax. When Uriah left the palace, the king sent a gift to him, probably food and some beverages. And Uriah stayed at the door of the palace with all the servants of his Lord. He did not go down to his house. So they informed David, Uriah has not gone down. I mean, plan A is not working very well. So David changes it just a bit. He sends Uriah again. Haven't you just arrived from a journey? Haven't you been gone down to your house? You need to go. Uriah replied to David, The ark in Israel and Judah reside in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and my lord's soldiers are camping in the open field. Should I go to my house and eat and drink and go to bed with my wife? As sure as you're alive, I will not do this thing. Wow. What a guy. <laughs> And then you got the louse sitting on the throne. So David says to Uriah, stay here another day. Tomorrow I'll send you back. Uriah stayed in Jerusalem both that day and the following one. Then David summoned him. He ate and drank with him and got him drunk. But in the evening he went out to sleep on his bed with the servants of his Lord. He did not go down to his own house. <laughs> As you look at this, Joab is brought again into the equation. In fact, he will be a character we're going to see several times in this latter part of studying the life of David. And we're told that David calls for Uriah, and we're hoping that this is going to bring some resolution, but it doesn't. You see the contrast between David and Joab in this text, or Uriah, excuse me, David and Uriah. David is an Israelite, Uriah is a Hittite. That's an obvious one. One is disloyal, that is David, to his people. <laughs> Uriah is loyal to his king and, his, and the people. David, not Bathsheba's husband, sleeps with Bathsheba. Her own husband, Uriah, won't sleep with Bathsheba. David disobeys the Lord even though he is king, and Uriah obeys the Lord over the king. And we see that in verses 8 and 9, and in 11, Uriah says, no, 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 I, David, you can tell me to do this. I will not do this. David has no problem sleeping with a man's wife. Uriah thinks it's inappropriate to sleep with his own wife at this time. David acts in attempt to cover up sin. Uriah abstains in attempt not to sin. David is self-absorbed. Uriah is selfless. One lacks integrity and the other possesses great integrity. This is David. This is the one we saw fight Goliath at the Elah Valley. This is the one we, we saw that took a stand for what is truth. I mean, he wouldn't even take Saul's life. And now we come to plan B, because this isn't working. He was hoping that Uriah would sleep with Bathsheba, and everyone would think that that's how she became pregnant, and it's all covered up. Well, that's not working. So he goes to plan B. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it... <laughs> to add insult to injury, sent it with Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, station Uriah at the front in the thick of the battle and then withdraw from him so he will be cut down and killed. Wow. So as Joab 
kept watch on the city. He stationed Uriah at the place where he knew the best enemy's soldiers were. When the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, some of David's soldiers fell in battle. Don't miss that. It's not just Uriah that's a casualty. Then Joab sent full report to David. He instructed the messenger as follows. When you finish giving the battle report to the king, if the king becomes angry, implying he might, I mean, why did you go so close to the city? I mean, that's just foolhardy. And, and Joab even refers to a, an event that occurred, Gideon, remember Gideon's son Abimelech, he gets too close during a battle, tries to burn this tower down, and a lady from the top throws a millstone and it kills Abimelech. That was a bad day for Abimelech. And so we get, he is, you know not to do that. He says, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Just say that. So the messenger departed. When he arrived, he informed David of all the news that Joab had sent with him. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and attacked us in the field and we were forced then to retreat all the way to the door of the city gate and the archers shot at your servants from the wall and some of the king's soldiers died. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. And David said to the messenger, tell Joab, don't let this thing upset you. Wow, that's golden. There's no way to anticipate whom the sword shall cut down. Press the battle against the city and conquer it. Encourage him with these words. <laughs> you look at this, and, and you can just hear David telling himself, plan A doesn't work. I gave Uriah a chance. Can't you just hear David? <laughs> now I've got to go to the next level. This is his fault. <laughs> now, Joab is no righteous dude either. Joab, if you remember, executed the commander-in-chief under Saul, Abner. Later, Joab is replaced by David because David doesn't have a lot of faith in Joab, and Joab kills that guy. And Joab killed David's rebellious son, Absalom. There is no love, and that tension between David and Joab will grow to the point that when David is on his deathbed, he will say to his son Solomon, do not let Joab die a peaceful death. Take him out. And Solomon is willing to comply because Joab also sided with Solomon's brother to try to create a coup. Anyway, I mean, as the world turn has nothing on this whole scene, right? And this is something. And so all that I want you to know is David's sin is filtering down in a variety of ways. And this leads us to warning five. Sin is seldom, if ever, compartmentalized. David is now instructing his own commander to kill, not his enemy. These aren't a group of Philistines or Ammonites. This is to kill his own soldiers and some of his best, Uriah. And again, Joab takes note of this. <laughs> He'll use this as blackmail later on. Because Joab is, he's not an idiot. He knows what's going on. When you think about it, David violates the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He breaks the tenth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. He also, in his attempts to cover up his sin, breaks the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. And the eighth, thou shalt not steal. Because he ends up stealing his... 
it's not compartmentalized. Sin is affecting everything David is touching. The cleverly concocted plan ensured Uriah wasn't walking away from the battle. And that's what we see here. In fact, five times this chapter will state Uriah was killed or he died. David's commander, Joab, should have said, David, this doesn't make military sense. This is not right. You should not do this. But oh no, Joab, being a murderer himself, had no problem complying with the wishes. And sadly, again, not only does Uriah die, but we're told some of David's soldiers. I love how the text tells us some of David's soldiers and David's response to Joab after this messenger delivers the report. I mean, literally, it's, well, notice what the text says. The Net Bible has here uh, in this response to the messenger, don't let these things upset you. It literally, if you're rendering it from the Hebrew, says, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Wow. David's conscience is seared. He can no longer tell what is good and what is bad. And that's the problem with sin. <laughs> I mean, again, this is the guy who wept over the death of Saul, his arch enemy. And this leads us to warning number six. No one is exempt from temptation and sin. Now, it just didn't happen that David was up on the rooftop and then has this affair. <laughs> the kinks in David's armor were seen much earlier than this. And in 2 Samuel 5, we're told that, G, that David, excuse me, took more concubines, not porcupines. Uh, these are female slaves. He, he, it says he takes more female slaves. That means he's having relationships with them and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. The flag should be going off everywhere. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on here? Can you imagine the, David having multiple wives and then concubines? I mean, the trip to Ulta or Sephora would cost him a fortune. I mean, good grief. Yet Deuteronomy 17 says this. When you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you and you take it over and you live in there, I will select a king. Listen to what the Lord says. From among your fellow citizens, you must appoint a king. You must not designate a foreigner who's not one of your fellow Israelites. Moreover, he must not accumulate horses for himself or allow the people to return to Egypt. Furthermore, he must not marry many wives, lest his affections turn aside and he's not to accumulate much silver and gold. While David wasn't busy building stables, he certainly was installing more bedrooms. And that was his problem. He was told not to do this. It is a, the relationship was to be between one man and one woman. And David has, the kinks have already been seen and now we come to this. And even the mighty fall, no one is exempt from temptation and sin. 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. It's easy for us to stand here and look at this text and go... Oh, David, that's just awful. You should know better than that. But take heed. It might not be sexual temptation. It might be the tongue, your temper, your battle with lying or gossip, criticism or failure to honor those that the Lord has placed in authority. Whatever the case, be careful. 
The text closes in two, it's kind of like, it ends so quickly. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah was dead, she mourned. Notice who doesn't mourn. There's no word about David mourning. (laughs) Just Uriah's wife, the widow, Bathsheba. When the time of mourning passed, David had her brought into the palace. She became his wife and she bore him a son. All's well that ends well. (laughs) Bathsheba is now his wife. David has a son. Uriah and that whole thing, that embarrassment, it's all done and it's over with. We can forget about it. But don't miss the last phrase of verse 27. But what David had done upset the Lord. The last warning I see here in the text for us, warning number seven, is yielding to temptation is never hidden from the Lord. You might think that the Lord has simply passed over our confessed sin, but such is not the case. The Lord is omniscient, meaning the Lord is all-knowing. Proverbs 15 states, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on those who are evil and those who are good. I have no doubt, well, I suspect, David thought at this point, he's got it made, everything's fine. Now, we're going to get to chapter 12 next Sunday, if you're not too depressed. Uh, We get to 12, and there are the consequences for the sin. David will lose four sons in this process. It will be devastating. And the Lord saw it all. What can we learn about temptation and sin? Well, first you've got the seven warning signs. We are, let me just repeat them. We're often most vulnerable when we are most successful. Temptation that is not resisted will result in failure. Temptation never reveals its true intent. Fourth, we have a choice on how we respond after giving in to temptation. Fifth, sin is never compartmentalized. Sixth, no one is exempt from temptation and sin. And seven, yielding to temptation is never hidden from God. If you've yielded to temptation this past week, please know if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. And cleanse us, the text says, from all unrighteousness. Isn't that glorious? I look at this Second Samuel 11, and it is a shocker. Every time I read it, it's a shocker. It's disappointing. David's up here. I love David. He's got my own name. But it, it's a bummer, right? I mean, you read this, and it's... But Second Samuel 11, the backdrop is we serve an awesome God. This is not a license for sin, I know that. But the promises God made would not be nullified even from David committing adultery and murder. Not because David was a saint, but because our God is a great and gracious God. And don't you love it when you turn to the New Testament and you got that genealogy list, the ancestry list there in Matthew 1, and it spells it out, you know, and it says, and then it's giving Jesus' line. It says, then there's Jesse. Jesse's the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
<laughs> Even in the genealogy list, they highlight the horse thieves. Oh, yeah, that was the one that David had the affair with. But that's God's grace. It's God's grace that he would extend grace and forgiveness and still use it to carry out his plan. And I love it. God's not sitting idly by in the process. So how do we resist temptation and not sin? Let me give you a few things to take note uh, there. And if you're taking notes, you want to write those down. If you're online, the notes there are available electronically. But first is prayer. And by the way, what you're going to hear is nothing earth-shattering. Most of us already know it, but I think we need to be reminded when it comes to resisting temptation and sin, the first, again, is prayer. I mean, think about it. If Jesus needed to pray and depend on the Holy Spirit facing temptation, if the Son of God needed to, how much more we? And Paul talks about the importance of prayer in Ephesians 6 when he says, with every prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and to this end be alert with all perseverance and petition. David wasn't on the rooftop having a prayer time. That was problem number one. Charles Spurgeon says, in all states of dilemma or of difficulty, prayer is an available source. The, strip, or excuse me, the ship of prayer may sail through all temptations, doubts and fears, straight up to the throne of God. And though she may be outward bound with only griefs, groans, and sighs, she shall return freighted with a wealth of blessings. Isn't that great? The importance of prayer. Not just prayer. Let me give you a, a second piece of armor to put on, and that's to study and memorize God's word. We need to be reminded of the truths. David should have been reminded of Deuteronomy. You are not as king to have more than one wife. Psalm 119, I hide God's word in my heart. I memorize it. Why? The psalmist goes on, so that I might not sin against you. And later in, in verse 133, it says, direct my steps by your word. Do not let any sin dominate me. The idea is here, I, I'm in the word that serves as a bulwark against sin. If you listen to the world, your feelings or your experiences, you will have serious difficulty determining what is right and wrong. And that's the fear. Third, the fellowship of the saints. We need to be engaged with other believers. David was alone in the palace. Again, he should have been on the battlefield, not in the bedroom. And Find me someone who's isolated as a believer and I'm going to get very anxious because that's a breeding ground for sin. Satan loves secrecy. <laughs> he, he loves when you know, men like darkness rather than light. You get the idea. Being together with fellow believers, it's the benefits are huge. Praying for one another, worshiping the Lord together, recognizing we don't have all the answers, and together we come as a body of believers. Uh, it's a time to laugh, it's a time to cry with others. True fellowship with fellow believers entails love, joy, praise, and unity. It's, it's important, it's vital. Let me give you another. Another way to avoid temptation and sin is to be alert and to be disciplined. 
Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God. We are fighting an offensive battle. The individual who is not proactive will fall into sin. Ironic, isn't it? <laughs> David was avoiding the battle in Rabbah only to face a far more devastating battle in Jerusalem. It wasn't the physical David should have been concerned about. It was the spiritual and the mental and sexual battle. That should have been his concern. I've quoted this before from D.A. Carson, but it's such a great quote. Forgive me for citing it again, but I just love this. People do not drift towards holiness. <laughs> Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition, we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of, of the loss of self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. Growth in the spiritual life requires discipline. And if you want to avoid falling into sin when temptation comes, you got to bathe it in prayer. You got to be in the word. You got to be with the saints. And you got to be alert because Satan is a roaring lion. He would love to destroy. And finally, there needs to be accountability. You look at 2 Samuel 11. There is no one speaking into David's life. You think a messenger is going to tell David? You know what? I mean, they hinted. By the way, that's the wife. You can just hear him. The wife of Uriah. But David doesn't get it. No, the David needs someone to say, don't you even think about it. Even the commander-in-chief says, you know what? I'll be happy to do, David. We'll, we'll take care of Uriah. We'll have him murdered. No problem. No one was there to warn David. And the danger of living in isolation as a believer is that also can happen. And we need to be careful. Gene Getz, in his book on elders and leaders, asks a series of, of questions that we need to be asking, or questions we need to ask in, in keeping accountability. And, and let me give you four that he says. We need to be asking one another, how often did you meet with God this week? What sins did you commit this week that you need to confess? How have you influenced others this week? What temptations are you battling? And these are pointed questions. They're not how to win friends and influence people. I understand that. But they're, they're vital. And as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to ask those questions. We say, you know what? Th that wasn't right. Because <laughs> you don't want them to wind up like David James 5, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great effectiveness. A Christian without accountability is a sin waiting to happen. The good news, 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men and women. Now listen to what the text says. God is faithful. Don't you love it?
It's not on us. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, oh, follower of Jesus, if you know Christ as your Savior this morning, you have the dwelling of the Holy Spirit who guides and directs. And according to 1 Corinthians 10, there is no temptation that God hasn't given you the resources to, in, to engage and to be successful. David did not tap into those resources. He had plenty of opportunities to make a beeline back into the palace, and he did not. He didn't have to ask the messenger to go, but he did. He didn't have to have Uriah get drunk, but he did. He didn't have to have Joab <laughs> kill Uriah, but he did. And so for us as Christ followers, may we look to the resources the Lord has graciously given to us so that we guard our hearts and we don't make the mistakes David did in 2 Samuel 11. Father, <clears throat> powerful text. It is a reminder and it is a bit of a somberness that Lord, we are sinners saved by grace. And Lord, our hearts are deceitfully wicked and we live in a nation that is deceitfully wicked. And Father, I know there's some sitting here this morning that say, yeah, I, I really blew it. <laughs> Maybe they've committed adultery. W whatever the case, they can relate very well to 2 Samuel 11. Lord, I pray that they seek you for forgiveness and may they recognize that as far as the east is from the west, you forgive. Oh, there are consequences and we'll talk about that, but Lord, you forgive and we thank you. For some in this room who claim to know Christ, the knee has never, it seems to be never bent towards you and, and that is that they keep toying with temptation and perhaps even living in sin. Lord, today I pray that they would heed the warning and bend their knee to you. Because clearly the text states you are very upset when your holiness, your name is tainted by those who claim to be followers of you. And Father, there's some in the room that don't know anything about this Jesus. They're enslaved to sin. They know that. They know the misery they're in. Ultimately, deep down, the loneliness, the hurts. Lord, there is victory found in your son, Jesus. And I pray that they would bend their knee and accept Jesus as their savior and the forgiveness that is extended at Calvary. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the grace that you've given to us. May we be found as faithful followers of you not yielding to temptation, but living lives marked by purity, marked by holiness. 